to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And John, I want to turn today to an interest of yours that you write about at the blog from time to time, and one that's becoming a little bit more of a topic amongst the general public, and that's housing. So this is an issue in a lot of areas of the country, but there are a few where it's particularly acute. Los Angeles, the Bay Area, New York City, D.C., Boston. And there are many parts of these cities where rents have just gone off into the stratosphere to the point where it can be hard to move to these places, even if you've got a pretty good job offer, just because you have to dedicate so much of your income to housing. And the thing that those markets that I mentioned have in common is that they're all kind of industry clusters for certain kinds of high-paying, white-collar jobs. So you will occasionally hear people say, look, that's just simple supply and demand. Those are hot markets, and so they're going to be expensive places to be. How satisfying is that argument to an economist? That's pretty darn good. Uh, I wish (laughs) wish more economists would start with supply and demand these days. Um, Although, so the one key of being a good economist is not to get – so you brought up the demand. Your story, you said supply and demand, but your story was the story people say, oh, there's all these uh, new jobs here. Uh, too many people want to move here. Well, that's demand. What about supply? Right. Uh, normally, um, is what happens in a case where there's more demand is they build more houses. Um, for those of our listeners who remember their supply and demand curves, the supply curve is pretty flat, at least after a year or two. Uh, so why are prices going up rather than building lots more housing? And the answer B is because in these places, uh, governments don't let you build more housing. And so the only uh, thing that can happen is people bid up like crazy the prices of the few houses that are actually available. And explain what you mean when you say they don't let you build more housing. In practice, how does that play out? What are the kind of policies that create that environment? (laughs) Um, Zoning restrictions, building restrictions, um, permitting restrictions, uh, land use restrictions. Um, So in Palo Alto, uh, where I live, uh, for example, lots and lots of people would like to live here. A teardown costs about two and a half million dollars, but the city doesn't has you have to build a small size house on a big size lot. You're not allowed to go up, which is the natural place to go. Uh, You're not allowed to build on lots of uh, open land that they have around here. Uh, Then they salt up the building codes with hundreds of thousands of dollars of extra costs. Um, So one way and another, it's and then that just the building and permitting process. Uh, I have recently rehabbed a house here. It's just a nightmare of extra time, cost, and expense that it goes through to to build anything. Uh, So the supply curve is vertical because um, basically government interference, largely local, some state as well, um, but um, governments don't want you to build houses. The impulse on the left has generally been that government can make a meaningful difference by intervening on the low end of the housing market. And this takes a variety of forms. It can be outright public housing where the government builds and operates the units. It can be, quote unquote, affordable housing where the government stipulates that developers have to build a certain number of units that go below market rates. And of course, in some places, there are also these rent control regimes where caps placed on how much can be charged for a unit. Do any of these strategies strike you as a particularly viable way of getting at the problem? Uh, no. <laughs> let's be uh, let's be um, fair. Uh, this is the immediate reaction on both the left and the right. Um, 
Although it's, it's kind of funnier on the left because uh, around here they have all these, they have signs in their front yards about how they welcome people from all cultures and whatever. And I, I keep wanting to add, as long as you've got the 4 million bucks it takes to live here, because <laughs> they're the first ones to limit supplies to sort of preserve things. But yes, the immediate response is, uh, uh, so rent control, uh, we can't let the rents go up. Well, that's a transfer from landlords to renters, and it has predictable and uh, predictable effects that have been seen over and over again. Uh, their landlords don't keep up properties. Nobody builds new apartments. You take stuff to condo as fast as you can. Uh, so then the supply shuts down. And uh, uh, people, it's a transfer. It helps people who've been here a long time and are in apartments and don't want to move uh, at the expense of people who would like to move here. It, it lowers the overall supply. Uh, but helps the people who were uh, already there. It's, it's as if they simply uh, took a gun and said to the landlord, you give that guy $100,000 so he can keep going, um, that particular guy. And, and I think that's a, a good example of the problems. Um, so it, it keeps in place people who've been there for a long time, um, whereas uh, what we'd like is to build more houses for the people who'd like to come and let those people stay where they are. Or if we're only going to have so many houses, um, you know, what we'd like is is those houses to go to the to people who want to come for the great new jobs here um, and and other people move to cheaper places uh, who don't really have to live here. That, that's, you know, economics is about allocating things to their uh, best use. Uh, public housing has a similar disastrous history. Uh, uh, the government is a poor landlord. We've known that for a long time. And yeah, the blog post took on affordable housing. That's something that I've, I keep wanting to look into. It's very murky. It sounds wonderful. We, the government, will force new developers to build affordable units that go to low-income people. Now, uh, as an economist, you, you, you can already smell a rat here. Um, <laughs> and the, the first rat is, that, well, therefore, it's going to drive up further the cost of the, quote, market rate stuff. Um, so if I have to not just buy a house for me, I have to buy a house for the other guy, too. That house is going to be twice as expensive. Um, making that problem worse. And I, in all social programs, I worry most of all about disincentives. That, that's what economists are supposed to do. Don't worry. Our job really isn't to worry about income transfers, good or bad. I don't mind if you tax the rich. I just don't want the disincentives. And here I see awful disincentives on the people you're trying to help. Suppose you wait, you have to Anything that is uh, given away for a low price, um, you, you get a line. So it means you got to wait two or three years to get the affordable housing. Then it's income limited. So if you go get a better job and earn some more income, you lose your house. Well, don't get that better job. If you get a job across town, well, there's no way to get an affordable house across town. So don't take that better job across town. Um, if you, you don't want to move and you get a, a better a job in another city. Well, you got your affordable house here, so you got to stick with that. And most of all, the the the, the uh, low-income kid from Fresno who wants to move here and, and take one of these high-paying jobs. Well, the affordable housing, um, as in the blog post example, it goes to people who were there, could stay in line for four or five years, and then sit in the same place. 
uh, great for them. But who that really hurts is the up and coming uh, person from uh, from somewhere else who wants to move here, doesn't have five million bucks for a house, uh, but wants to move here and take one of these great jobs. So it's it's terrible for inequality. It makes inequality worse. It makes opportunity worse. It kind of sticks people in a low income trap. Uh, those are all my suspicions about it. And I'm, I'm uh, kind of on a hunt for uh, for facts and data. But that's certainly what standard economics tells you to worry about when you see affordable housing. This seems to have died down a little bit since the financial crisis. But for a long time, there was a notion in American life that home ownership was an essential part of the American dream. And public policy was inclined towards helping people buy houses. So, for instance, famously, you can deduct your mortgage interest on federal income taxes, although that has been circumscribed a little bit under the Trump administration. And that's just one of many examples that we could cite. Is that a worthwhile policy goal to have the government trying to goose home ownership that way? Yeah, the government likes to put its fingers on the scales for all sorts of um, ideas that have very little evidence for them, like the wonders of home ownership versus renting. Renting is a wonderful contract, especially renting an apartment where, uh, you, you know, renting a house, houses are harder to keep up up with and, and might be a maintenance issue. But renting an apartment is, a great, you know, if you're young and you're you're going to change jobs in the next year or three years or so, or maybe change cities, what do you want to buy a house for? Um so it, most lots of Europe gets along just fine on on rented house uh, rented apartments uh, or or condos. So uh, this great push for you know land the, people say oh the the renter doesn't have the incentive to keep up the place. Well the landlord has the incentive to keep up the place, and lots of houses we've all seen are um, not very well kept up by their owners. Uh, whereas apartments, you know the landlord really if he doesn't keep that thing up then um, he's not going to rent it well. Uh, homeowners. This push for homeownership also has, I think, pretty disastrous implications. Uh, we pushed, especially subsidized lending, Fannie, Freddie, all that business. We pushed a lot of people, not in the hot areas, but in, in the um, areas that are struggling in the U.S. to buying houses. So you buy a house in, in you know, a small town in, in Wisconsin, uh, you borrow a lot of money to do it, then the plant uh, gets, the plant's uh, closes. And now not only have you lost your job, but the house that you bought, having borrowed a ton of money, is now underwater. So uh, you've lost financially a tremendous amount, too. Um, the number one thing a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau should do is to get Americans out of an immensely leveraged, very illiquid, highly risky, speculative investment, the owner-occupied home uh, that is... <laughs> Also causing people to get stuck in bad places and not able to move uh, to follow opportunities. John, there's this attitude that for years has been known by the shorthand NIMBY, which is an acronym for not in my backyard. This is people who are opposed to development in the areas around where they live or I guess in some cases work. Um, it has now, especially in some of those high cost markets we were discussing, inspired a counter movement <laughs> known as YIMBY, yes, in my backyard. Uh, when you hear the NIMBY types make their case, one of the things they'll often talk about is things like community character, right? They want to preserve things the way they are. They're in essence arguing that there is this sort of ineffable externality that comes with new development. And, and that can be a very powerful argument for local politicians. How does an economist reckon with it? 
Yeah, local politicians respond to the people who are there and right. not to the people who would like to move there. Uh, one of the fundamental problems of, of how things work. Um, and yes, that is uh, what, what they say is, um, yeah, well, Palo Alto has been now preserved as a museum of 1950s suburbia uh, at <laughs> millions of dollars per house. Uh, and in fact, our affordable, many of our affordable housing, our, our local government also preserved a trailer park rather than um, give each resident there about the $400,000 uh, it was going to spend on it and preserved a little museum of poverty. Well, that was nice. Um, now, but this, it, this isn't just the honest expression of a community's desires. Uh, one of the uh, classic economics problems here is that people are able to use uh, laws designed for other purposes just to stop things. So if your neighbor doesn't, if your house, if your higher house is going to interrupt your neighbor's view, there's no really good market for uh, your neighbor gives you 10,000 bucks and you say, okay. Uh, but there is uh, the possibility for you to go down and object to it and stop him from constructing that house. So you can, in order to save yourself 10,000 bucks worth of value, you can destroy a million dollars of value next door. Um, so a lot of our possibly well-intentioned uh, rules and laws, environmental laws are misused to this extent all the way. They're, they're used sort of to, to stop things that have tremendous value to the other person so that you can, uh, you know, make sure you aren't hurt by a small amount. So I think that there's some arguable pathology that this isn't just the correct expression of what the uh, of what the neighborhood wants. Uh, and I must point out that there is this YIMBY movement, the Yes in My Backyard, which gives me great hope. Lots, even in... Uh, the one-party state, amazingly progressive California, lots of people have figured out, you know what? They need to just build more housing, and especially up. Um, why are we stopping? And that's the answer. Not affordable rate, not public, not rent-controlled, not some special for this or special for that. Just we need to build more housing. And that's playing out within the uh, sort of the left-wing politics that dominate this place. And, and maybe sometimes having things within the party rather than partisan leads to uh, more progress. One of the more controversial issues within housing, we hear about it a lot here in the New York City area where I live, is, is gentrification, the pattern of people buying up properties in down-at-the-heels neighborhoods and fixing them up. And with that, the neighborhood becomes nicer, and then the property values go up. And then the people who lived in it before complain that they start getting priced out. And this takes a while. I mean, gentrification always starts starts bohemian and ends bourgeois, right? It begins with a few people who are willing to take the risk of living in a funky neighborhood, and then it ends with you know, corporate chains in town. But this is, amongst its critics, regarded as a kind of predation, that people with more money can come in and buy up a place and push the longtime residents out to the periphery. Is that the right way to think about it? Uh, well, push. Um you know, people who own houses in uh, neighborhoods that are gentrified should be delighted because they're going to get great values for their property. Um, the the essence of a rental contract. So why why do you own rather than rent? The main thing you get when you own is the right to stay there, uh, if it's if it becomes more valuable. It's it's protection against rent increases. If you rent, the normal course of things is you're there for a year, but if it becomes more valuable, then somebody else gets it. Um, now, what we'd all like is to pay the low price and also get the right to stay there. Um, and that's that then, you know, you rent and you complain about being pushed out. Uh, the, I'm not saying these are easy or hard things, but, you know, economically, when a uh, 
so many places want redevelopment so badly, and then it comes, and then they call it gentrification. Um, uh, but economically, the, our economy as a whole does better if resources are put to their best use, if neighborhoods uh, can redevelop, uh, if um, people can come in, exploit new jobs. A lot of the people in that neighborhood are, are going to benefit. One, they're going to get a Whole Foods store and a new job and so forth. Um, so um, it, uh, it, it's, yes, one has to feel for the plight of people leaving, but keeping it a poor neighborhood forever uh, doesn't seem like the right answer either. Final question for you. You hinted at this a bit in your last answer. It seems to me, and feel free to correct me if you think I've got this wrong, but that there is a deep tension in how Americans think about housing. And what I mean by that is everybody wants to get into a house for as little money as they can. But a lot of Americans, upon owning a house, use it as their primary investment vehicle. That's where they've got most of their wealth tied up. And so they're counting on a pretty dramatic appreciation by the time they sell it off. They're sort of relying on it not being affordable for the next guy. Are those two impulses more reconcilable than they seem at first blush, or are we just thinking about housing the wrong way? Uh, yeah. Um, well, we're thinking about lots of things the wrong way. First of all, <laughs> a house is a terrible investment. Everybody needs to, if you want to invest, invest in stocks. A house is a place to live. <laughs> um and another way of thinking about it, you know, the government cheers when house prices go up. That's great for old people who live in houses uh, that they want to sell, but it's terrible news for young people who want to buy houses. Uh, why, why would we don't cheer when the price of cars goes up or when the price of gas goes up? Well, houses are a consumer good, too. So I'm all for lower house prices and not for viewing them as an investment. And I want to say one more thing on your on your question about uh, the gentrifying neighborhoods. Um, the best we need to build houses for low-income people. Um, but the right way to do that is not government-subsidized brand-new houses. You know, the right, the the easy way to do that is to build any housing and then let it depreciate. Um, and that's when you build more housing, when you rehab a bad neighborhood, it eventually gets into the hands uh, of of lower-income people. So um, fixing things up is is never a bad idea. All right. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.